turn with me now to the book of John in chapter 20. We'll be reading from John's gospel today, beginning in verse uh, chapter 20, verse 19. John 20, 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now as we look at your word and we ask that you would speak to us through it, that you would teach and instruct us, that you would implant the truth of the resurrection deeply into our hearts, that as we hear Jesus's words, peace be with you, that that peace would transform us that that peace beyond all understanding would guard us and protect us and that we would truly rest in the peace that is ours in the resurrection of Christ. Lord, you're the only one who can do this. This isn't about our ma- uh, effort, uh, a matter of our effort. It's not a matter of our focus or uh, anything that we can do. We come humbly before you confessing that we are dependent upon you to transform our hearts and our minds, that we are dependent on you to grow us in sanctification, that we are dependent on you, Lord, to do the work that you have promised to do. And so we come to you with confidence and we look forward to how you will grow us this day, that we might shine as lights as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a young adult in my early 20s, I was a youth minister at a small church plant. And while there, I had a, uh, just a special relationship with one of the families who were part of that church. Mike and Bridget Nochi were incredibly gracious to me in so many ways. They opened up their home uh, where I held most of the youth activities. 
They, I'm sure we tore things up. I'm sure that we did damage that I still don't know about to this day. They would take my little uh, Honda and give me their Suburban for youth activities and drove all over uh, using their vehicle. They were extremely gracious to me. I even lived with them for a short time when I was between apartments and just really enjoyed their entire family and remain friends to this day. Mike was a physician, and he was the head of uh, family practice at Tripler Army Medical Hospital, which is a regional center, and, and I, I'm pretty sure it was a training kind of center. A lot of young doctors came. Mike was very open about his faith, and so we ended up with a lot of doctors in our congregation. And so whenever there were social gatherings at their house, I was often either the only non-medical person or I felt like the only non-medical person. And it was very eye-opening to me because I learned something that I, I didn't know. You see, I had always thought that medicine was an exact science, that doctors came in, they looked at you, they did tests, they diagnosed you, and then they told you how to fix it, or they fixed it themselves, or whatever, they, they treated you. But as I was at these social gatherings, and being that it was primarily medical people, the conversations always went into medical conversation, and sometimes included Mike pulling out slides from his mission trips to Africa, where you saw things that, well, I had never seen before. Well, they would ask each other questions and talk about, yeah, I tried this, and I thought maybe it was that. Well, did you do this, and did you try that? And in my naivety, my eyes were just uh, wide, they, they, were, they were opened really for the first time to see that medicine isn't an exact science, that there is a sense that um, there are times where doctors don't know exactly what to do or how to treat. And uh, my dad would joke and say that's why they call it medical practice. But what was revealed for me in that time, I think, captures how our entire society looks at medicine, but particularly science in particular, uh, or uniquely in general, how science is, is looked at is that it is an exact science, that scientists observe something and that's truth. There's no question. They observed it, so it's true. There's no consideration for bias or for incorrect observations or anything like that. Typically, that's the way our society looks at science. Now, most of us know better than this, and I sound very naive in even telling that story because we've all <laughs> probably been to doctors where we've heard things like, hmm, I've never seen that before, or um, let's uh, try this first and see if it works. Or some doctors think this, but I don't agree with them. And when we hear phrases like this, we quickly realize that medicine isn't an exact science. In fact, I don't know that an exact science exists. In reality, I think science has become almost the religion of our culture. If you think about it, even our language about it reveals that there is a faith component in science. And that has certainly been made evident recently with this whole pandemic, that science will find the answer. Even hear that language? We hear things like that. Uh, science tells us, or science has found that, or uh, according to science, we know. And so even in the language, we see that there is this faith component. 
Now, science is good. Science is not the problem. I'm not beating up on science. And medicine, of course, is wonderful, and we're thankful for good medical care. But neither should be the ultimate object of our hope, because science isn't an exact science. We can make use of it. We can value it. We can be a part of it. We can work toward it. And we can certainly thank God for both science and medicine But those are not the places in which we should place our hope. Our expectations as a society, though, are that is where the answer will be found, especially in this current time. And we we think of things like testing and trials and observations and and so many things that are being done. And yet through this process, we realize there is much that we don't know. And so this brings up the question then, particularly in light of the resurrection, how do we know what we know? This is, this is a deep question. We call this epistemology, how we know what we know. How do we know what we know? And there is no more critical time to consider that thought than when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul was confronting disbelief in the resurrection. And in doing so, in between where we read earlier, he gives a list of things that would be true if the resurrection were not true. And they're things that we need to hear and consider. He says in verse 14, that if the resurrection weren't true, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In verse 15, he says, if the resurrection were not true, that we are even found to be misrepresenting God. That your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are just gone. They've perished. There's no hope. And then finally in verse 19, that if the resurrection's not true, then we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, the resurrection is essential. Now, none of us have witnessed the resurrection. None of us um, are eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. In fact, we've not seen photographic evidence or video evidence or anything that we can go back and observe. So how do we know then that the resurrection is even true? Well, quite simply, we take what has been written from testimony and historical account and we rationally deduce that it's true. And this is no different than how we treat the fact that George Washington was our first president, that Iliad wrote the Odyssey, or that Christopher Columbus sailed to the New World with three ships. We have no photographic proof, no videos or uh, hidden camera footage that we can go back and look and verify those things. We simply take the historical account and the testimonies that were given, things that were written down, and we rationally deduce that those things are true. Now, we could spend the entire day, in fact, much longer than the entire day, talking about the reliability of Scripture. And I would say that if you have questions about that, I would love to uh, point you to some wonderful resources that will help uh, you appreciate the reliability, the, the truthfulness of Scripture. But we see that this, that the reliability of Scripture, and particularly the truth of the resurrection, 
in addition to all the other miracles that Jesus did, are the reason why John wrote his book. We talked about this a little bit last week, that John in verse 31 says, these were written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. In essence, it's, it's what journalists do. That John, as an eyewitness to these things, is doing what a journalist would do. He's observed, he's taken account of the events that have happened, and he's written them down so that you might know that they happened. And so that is what John, along with the other three gospel writers, have done for us in their gospel accounts so that we might know, and in addition, that we might believe that Jesus rose from the dead. This is why we celebrate Easter This is why we have hope in this life and particularly in these times that are so dark. So today, let us consider some of the events that are surrounding the resurrection of Jesus as is found in John's gospel. So I invite you now to look in verse 19 again. And the first thing that we notice is that John makes a particularly uh, or he makes particular extra effort. He, he puts focus on the fact that it is the first day of the week. Now, why does he do this? Uh, he's already said that it's the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, but he wants us to know that this is indeed Sunday. And this is a pattern that emerges in the New Testament where New Testament writers are helping uh, the, the, the Christian faith as it emerges out of Judaism, many of whom would have been practicing Jews coming out of that who were accustomed to worshiping on Saturday or the Sabbath to know that because Jesus rose on Sunday, this is now the Lord's Day. And so we see them gathered at this time in the room where they were gathered. And we'll see that they regather the next Sunday when Thomas joins in. He also gives some additional details about the doors being locked and that the disciples feared the Jews. Actually, both of those are connected because the latter is uh, the reason for the former. They had the doors locked because they were fearful of the Jews. And we could certainly understand their fear. The Jews had killed Jesus. They had tried to kill Lazarus. There is very little question uh, as to why the disciples would be fearful that they would see that um, there might be a hit list and they would certainly be next on the list after Jesus. And so it is in this situation that we read, Jesus then enters and stands among them saying, peace be with you. Now the text says that Jesus came and stood. So Jesus arrived in that room. This was not a theophany of the omnipresent God. This was something different, okay? This is not like what we see in the Old Testament where God appears. It's it's often what we think of and we've accounted, uh, we have encountered this in Genesis where we've seen the angel of the Lord and many scholars believe that when that language is used and you'll see it capitalized in your Bible that it refers to the pre-incarnate Christ, because we see worship given in those contexts that's not refused. And typically when angels were worshipped because of the fear and the encounter, they would always refuse the worship. And so that's not what's happening here. He wasn't there as a ghost or as a phantom. We see that he points to the, the scars. And later in the text, we see he invites Thomas to touch him, to, to, to put his hand in his side. So there was still the wound scarred over. 
In Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that Jesus says, I'm hungry. Do you have anything to eat? And he ate fish with them. So Jesus is there in bodily form, although his resurrected body seems to have some new features. Or so we would guess that this is the reason why he could come and arrive when the doors are locked. But we're not, we're not given specific details. And frankly, this it's what we want. Right. We all want to know how this happened. We want to know, will our resurrection body have these features and scripture is silent on that. We don't know. We don't know. There's mystery to this. All that we know was Jesus came and he was truly present in bodily form with the disciples in this moment. And he greets them with the typical Hebrew greeting of shalom or peace. Peace be with you. However, in the current context, we can certainly understand that this had a far more significant meaning for his disciples. Think of all that they had been through. Think of how their world had been shaken. Think of all of the questions that remained in their head. Think of the reason why they were in this room behind locked doors. They were in their own kind of self-imposed quarantine. And while this is something that we can relate to in our current time, being in quarantine ourselves, uh, the reason for theirs was quite different. But in some ways, it was the same. They were fearful of something outside, something that could cause them harm. And that does resonate with us. And so these words are certainly not only applicable to them, but also to us. We need the peace of God. Listen to what D.A. Carson writes about this proclamation that Jesus gives. He says, Easter evening is the complement of it is finished on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. The resurrection proves everything that Jesus accomplished. It changes everything. All that they had feared, all that they were fearing was undone. All the questions, all the things they were afraid that could happen to them, all of it melted away in the presence of Jesus. He showed them his hands and his side. There's now no doubt this is him. He had risen from the dead. And their demeanor then reflects the realization. As verse 20 says, they were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus then proclaims, as he proclaims peace over them in verse 21, he gives them what is, in a sense, John's version of the Great Commission. He commissions them in these words, saying, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Understand that the mission of God, the the, the Trinitarian God, is a unified mission. There are different roles. We see the different roles in the mission, but it is a unified mission. So when Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so send I you, he is giving them a mission that is his mission. It's not a new mission. We're not to come up with a creative mission or a different mission. All we do is carry on his mission, his ministry. It's his, not ours. All we do is carry on what they, uh, the, the, the Trinitarian God unified in one, what God has put into place. That is the work of redemption. That's the mission of God. The father elects, the son accomplishes, the spirit applies. They have their respective roles, but it is singular in mission and intention. And so it is with our mission then. 
given to us by Jesus. It is his ministry that we participate in and carry out. This is why I always get wary of people who uh, think that they need to be super creative as Christians to come up with something new or do something really different than has been done over 2,000 years. Uh, Certainly we can be creative and we can think about uh, contextualizing and, and so forth, but Let's be careful that we don't ever turn something into our own mission or our own ministry or start to become possessive of it or think that branding ourselves is the answer uh, to, to, uh, to magnifying Christ. No, we, we, we magnify Him. It's His ministry. It's His mission. We are simply participants. And so this mission, which hasn't changed since this Easter evening, is what he then goes on to describe in verses 22 and 23. He says, or John writes, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You may wonder how this gels with our own understanding of other scripture or even our own uh, context. This is a bit puzzling at first glance. How does this line up with Pentecost? Isn't that when the Holy Spirit came? Isn't that what Jesus promised? After I leave, I will send the helper. Didn't he tell his disciples specifically to wait for the helper? And they went into that room and waited after his ascension. So what is happening here? Well, when you come to a puzzling text that seems like it doesn't jive, this is why we are committed to allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so we look to what Scripture says, what it teaches, what it does, what it tells us about who God is, because we know that He never changes, that He is the same yesterday and today and forever. So let me say this up front. There are not two outpourings of the Spirit. There are not two Pentecosts. That's not what has happening here. What is happening here is like the Old Testament prophets would often use and, 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 and perform object lessons, as it were. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, and so he serves in the role as prophet. This isn't the only example of this either, but if you think in terms of Jeremiah uh, in chapter 32, where he is told to go and purchase a land as a sign, as a symbol, as an object lesson to the people that following God's judgment they would return to the land. So there was something they could see. It was tangible. He was giving an object lesson. Think of Ezekiel, where he was told to, in Ezekiel 4, he was told to take a brick and draw the city of Jerusalem on it and then lay up siege works. You might imagine uh, you know, a kid's Legos or, or block set or something. Uh, uh, almost, I always picture it almost like a toy set. To, he, he did this as an object lesson to show that the judgment of God was coming. I think of the Lord's Supper. I think of Passover. So many of these things where these object lessons are given to us by God to help us understand something more significant, something that is to come, uh, something that is deeper. And God is gracious in doing this. And so in a similar prophetic form, Jesus is demonstrating what is to come when he sends the Spirit or the Helper. Think of when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He said to them, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, the washing of the disciples' feet is certainly, there's there's lessons there about servanthood where he tells them, uh, you know, as I've done for you, you should do for one another. That's clearly a part of that context. But there's, 
certainly washing going on, cleansing, where he says, if you are not washed by me, then you have no part of me. And yet when Jesus was washing their feet, was he washing their sins away in that moment? No. No, he's pointing to what he's going to do in his death and resurrection. It's an object lesson of what he will do in cleansing them from all unrighteousness. And so that is what is happening here in this passage concerning him breathing on them. The breathing then was this object lesson for them to know that the gift of the Spirit was going to come. And then he charges his disciples in this mission, in this ministry, with pronouncing forgiveness or guilt. And again, this serves as kind of an object lesson where Jesus has imparted to them, is imparting to them a mission that continues to this day, that uh, this is the keys of the kingdom, so to speak, that he is giving them the means to carry out the mission through his body, the church. And what he is saying in and, in and through this is not that the officers of the church actually forgive or don't forgive, but they declare. We have a ministry of declaring. We can only declare what Jesus has accomplished. And we do declare that. We declare that when we preach the gospel. We declare that if by faith you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins... Your sins are forgiven. I can tell you that because Jesus has said that. It's in his word. I can declare that to you. In the same time, unfortunately, there are times where Christians uh, walk away. They, they, they turn. They reject the faith. And they do this often in patterns of sin. And so there are instructions in Scripture for church discipline where the officers Uh, particularly the elders, are to, in gentleness, bring through multiple steps, steps, attempt to bring that person back. It's in that context of church discipline that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18 that he writes, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That verse that is often quoted in the context of gatherings of worship, two or three, um, is actually written in the context of church discipline. That's what, or spoken, I should say, of Jesus in the context of church discipline. The officers of Christ church do not go around declaring whatever they want. This is not their prerogative. We simply proclaim the gospel in agreement with God's word, and by this we receive into the church those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And in receiving them, we are affirming what the gospel says, that by faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven. And likewise, we are to call those to repentance who turn towards sin and walk in unrepentance so that they might turn back and repent. Uh, but also church discipline is, serves as an example to others. It serves as an example to the rest of us not to go in that way. So this is a declarative role that Jesus then establishes or pronounces upon the apostles here that is to be carried out in his church through the ages, even to our own day. Our mission is declaring his mission, that he came to save, to seek, and to save 
the lost. That's what we are doing. And so as a local body, that is how we express what he has instituted or established here. Now, a week goes by. And Thomas, who we were told wasn't here before, so only 10 of the disciples were here. Judas is is gone at this point. So 10 of the disciples are here the first week. Next week, now Thomas is here. We don't know why he was absent, uh, but we we only are given a little bit of insight, and that is he really is struggling to believe. And we can understand why. That's kind of a big deal. It's not every day that you see a resurrection. And in particular, the trauma of watching the one in whom you had put all of your confidence. And Thomas, as we look back in history, what is recorded about him as an apostle, he wasn't wishy-washy, he wasn't mushy. And so he was following Christ wholeheartedly. And to see uh, the one you follow crucified in such a way, uh, killed, that would have been devastating. So let's cut Thomas some slack here and be understanding of why he would be struggling to, uh, to believe. And we see the same pattern. So it's, it's, it's eight days later. So it's the next Sunday evening, uh, the Lord's Day. They've gathered. Maybe they spent a lot of time in the room. Maybe they didn't leave during the week. We don't know. But they were here again gathered. And this time Jesus, it says, came and stood, although the doors were locked. We see the same thing occur. However, this time he goes directly to Thomas. And he explains or calls Thomas to line for line, everything Thomas had said, I've got to be able to touch the scars. I've got to be able to put my hand in his side. I've got to be able to see. Jesus invites him to do every single thing. Why? I mean, Jesus could have rebuked him. He could have been harsh with him. But Jesus is very gentle, like a shepherd, carrying Thomas through his doubts, through his questions, and helping him to see. And so when he does see and his eyes are open, we see this incredible confession my Lord and my God. In the Greek, it is kurios, which would have been a word that people would have used almost like master or boss or so forth. But there, this form is the one that is used when it is translating the word uh, Adonai or for Yahweh. And so he is saying, in essence, he is saying to Jesus, my Yahweh and my God. And Jesus doesn't refuse the worship. He not only accepts it, he then pronounces a blessing on all who believe, and in particular, those who have not seen his resurrection body. This includes you. This includes me. Those of us who haven't seen, we are called blessed. This is a a beatitude, a blessed. Um, Now, often when the beatitudes are taught, uh, the word for blessed is is equated to a word for happy, and that's it's not uh, incorrect to say that. But we do need to remember, anytime we look at the Beatitudes, that when we are declared blessed, it's not, we're not declared happy. We're declared accepted by God, which makes us happy. So the focus is never on us. It's never, it's never about us. We are the gracious recipients of the acceptance of God in Christ. And because we're declared accepted, of course, this should make us happy. Listen and hear, you who believe in Jesus, you are accepted by God. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
And you who have yet to believe, hear me now, hear John's words now about the many signs that Jesus did, about the miracles that he did, but especially concerning the resurrection from the dead. Now, Jesus did many other signs in, which, in, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The words that we have read and considered were written for this reason. They were written with intention so that we might know that they are true and that we might believe. Like so many journalists who have seen and eyewitnesses who have given their account and wish to tell you what they've observed, John has written these words down for you and for me. But it's more than just believing that they happened. The call of Easter is the call to put our faith and our confidence in Christ and the one who accomplished these things that we might have life in his name, John says. His resurrection is the pathway for our resurrection. Or as Paul says, he is the first fruits. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. That is us who believe. We will rise from these corruptible bodies to eternal life with bodies that are incorruptible. And don't we long for that day? to be rid of these bodies, these bodies that fail, these bodies that give out. And this certainly is something that gives us a a focus of our hope in a time where everyone is particularly aware of their own mortality. You who have yet to believe, hear me today in saying that today is the day of salvation. That if you believe in your heart, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he died and rose from the dead, you will be saved. The hope of the resurrection is why believers can face pandemic without panicking. It's why we can look at something that is so disastrous and not be fearful. We can look at death and not be despondent. The hope of the resurrection is yours by faith in Christ today. Trust in His finished work instead of in your own efforts. His work is all sufficient. Your efforts, none of our efforts will ever measure up. They'll never be enough. Trust in His grace instead of in your own striving. His grace is without measure. Your striving, my striving, it's always going to be wanting. It's always going to be lacking. Trust in His love instead of in your own goodness because His love knows no end. And your goodness and my goodness, let's be honest, we, we know it's, it's not good enough. I mean, we know the deep secrets of our hearts that there is none righteous, there are none good, there's not one who measures up. Put your trust in Christ. It's why we need a Savior that we don't measure up, that we can't strive enough, that we can't uh, exert enough effort to be saved. We cannot save ourselves. It's why we need a Savior. And Jesus has died to save you and to me and save me from our sins. So believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. 
I started out talking about the experience of doctors and listening to them talk about medicine and realizing as a young adult, uh, really for the first time, that um, medicine isn't an exact science and, um, you know, that there, is, uh, uh, there are questions that remain. And again, we can all agree I was very naive, but let me encourage you who are trusting in Christ, don't be naive about the resurrection and all that it means for us. Don't be naive about the hope that is ours in Christ because He lives. You and me, through this resurrection that Jesus, in which He conquered sin and death, our past has been paid for. We know that. Our future is secure and we look forward to that day. But let me say it also matters here for the present. That Jesus' death and His resurrection matters for this present time. When He said to the disciples, peace, He speaks that same peace over us. Peace be with you. The resurrection of Christ means something, means everything, not just for the past, not just for the future. It means something right now. His peace is yours. He has spoken it over you. You may not feel it. You may struggle to believe it, but He has given you His peace. And that peace that passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Now, that peace is not some kind of tangible commodity. It's not something I can take out of my pocket and hand to you. It's not something I can send you in the mail or uh, send it over a text message. The peace of God that is ours in Christ is Christ Himself. The peace that is ours from God is Christ Himself. So that's where you have to go. You have to go to Him. He is a person. This isn't just some classroom where we're talking about ideas that we are trying to to understand like it's some kind of lecture. We are engaged in the worship of our Savior, and it's Him that is our hope. He is our hope. So you have to go to Him. You can do this through through prayer, through being in His Word. You know all of these things. There's nothing, there's nothing secret about any of these things. We know how we're to engage. And sometimes those prayers are, are extended periods of time. And right now we have some of that. We have more of that than we normally do. But sometimes this life of prayer, and what it often looks, looks like, frankly, are these popcorn prayers throughout the day as we face challenges, as we face troubles, as fear creeps in, as doubt creeps in, as, as questions come up and we, we feel the, the pushback uh, of this gap that we're in, that in those moments we go, Lord, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Remind me of your peace. You are my peace. Guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. You may need to turn off the news for a bit. You may need to back away from social media or information overload. I'm, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying watch, watch your disciplines. Look at how you're spending your time. Don't, let, don't be naive like I was about medicine. Don't be naive about all that the resurrection means for you. His peace is yours. Listen to His words to you this day. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, oh, that you would give us your peace. We know that it's ours. We know that you have given it to us. And yet we come back to you again and again asking you, give us peace, give us peace, Lord. And it's, it's not your fault. You haven't done anything wrong. You're God. You're perfect in all of your ways. You do everything well. You intend nothing but good toward us. It's us, Lord. We're sinners. We're coming to you confessing that we continually forget the truth of the hope of the resurrection. We have all our little idols, the things that we would rather put our confidence in, the voices that we would rather listen to, and we're so easily distracted and so easily enamored by these things. Would you recapture our hearts? Would you draw us again to yourself over and over, especially in this time? Would you help us to discipline ourselves, to 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 guard how we're spending our time and what we're doing and what we're listening to and what we're reading. Lord, would you help us to come to Jesus, who is our peace, and to find that peace in Him that passes all understanding. Lord, that we would marvel at this gracious, generous peace that you've given us, and that we would praise you and magnify your name for it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.